Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm really glad you could join me, as we're going to get the chance to speak with Matthew Jackson. And we have a great conversation about his background as a tech entrepreneur, and we also touch on some influences and things that have affected his life, as well as his thoughts about the future. I learned a lot from Matthew, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this as well, so we're going to get right into it. If you do like this episode, then don't forget that there's more than 270 others in the back catalog, so you might want to check out some of those as well. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz as well as a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page, a Twitter page. There's lots of ways to connect. And a special shout out to all of you in EHF, because we have a great conversation about that as well towards the end of the interview. And thanks to all of you who keep posting about Seeds on social media. It really helps. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Matthew. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Matthew Jackson to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks, Stephen. I'm pretty excited. I've been looking at the work you've been doing since I started to get to know you through the Evan Hillary Fellowship. So yeah, real honor to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well, because I know you've done, you're one of those people who's done a variety of really different, interesting things. Um, so we're going to talk about that and also what you're up to today. But I always like to go back with people into the past. So I'm wondering if you could go back to say when you were four or five years old, can you tell us where you were living and what was life like for you? Yeah, for sure. And just can I just start by saying a little bit about myself? I mean, I guess uh, called Tongariro Tamaunga and to, called Waikato Te Awa, called Jackson Tokafano, called Matthew Toka Ingawa, and uh, I guess Kai Tami Kimakaro, Toka Kainga Inga Ainai. So that will take you back. Basically, the first thing I said was, um, yeah, I was actually born in Blenheim in the South Island, but I, you know, moved from Blenheim to Taupo when I was seven. I think in my my life, the the major influences were my father and my mother. But uh, my father was a, a Baptist pastor. My mother was a high school music teacher, and I can see to this day my desire to help community really comes from my father and. My desire for lifelong learning comes from my mother. And do you remember those early days when you were living in Blenheim? Was that, that must have been a distinct memory? The memories I have of Blenheim, the, there's two that I find unusual. One is I ended up going to primary school before I was five years old. And by law, I couldn't stay there during lunchtimes because I wasn't allowed to be supervised by the teachers. And so I would come home. And the two things that I remember was one, finding a wallet outside the courthouse on my walk home as a, as a, you know, four and a four year old, uh, you know, it would have been 800 meters and it was a straight line. So it's not a big deal, but we, you know, I don't, I can't see that happening in today's world and which is sad. Um, and also the, the school in Denham had its hundredth Jubilee and I was the youngest student and they had a picture. I had a photo on the front page of the, of the, um, of the newspaper with the, the oldest student cutting a cake. So those are my memories of, of, of that, that time. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And you mentioned your parents. I'm always interested in those influences. Um, can you tell us a little bit about them and, you know, what did like for your mother, for example, what had motivated her to get into the career that she did? I think I was, I've been really fortunate that 
my mother, I mean, she, she at the age of 17 had the highest qualifications for the Trinity College of Music, both in singing and at the point in time that you get the highest qualifications, you can then judge others. And so she judged herself to get the one for piano. And so she really followed her passion for most of her life. And um, unfortunately, she passed away um, in 2015. And obviously, you know, that had an impact on me as well. Uh, but the, I remember being very dissatisfied with high school. You know, I, I didn't know what my place was. I, I already had two jobs at that stage and was making quite a lot of money as a, as, a, as a student and couldn't see the point of being in high school. And remember coming home, being upset about my having to turn on a geography paper. And she goes, well, why don't you just leave school? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, look, apply to university. If you're ready to go, then, then apply. And, you know, to this day, I am so grateful because I sat down with her to look at university and she said, well, I said, what should I do? She said, do the things you're interested in. And I was interested in international business and marketing and in systems. And so I still do that same basic work today. And there's so many people that I speak to about their university career that they didn't actually they still don't do They didn't do the work because they didn't get to choose their passion. And I, I, I'm so grateful that my mum, you know, did that. But also during my time, she took us over to the States and I lived in America when I was 12 um, through 15. And that meant we got on the internet really early. I was 12 years old on the internet around 1992, which, you know, is very, very, it means that effectively I'm a very early adopter. And, you know, I'm so grateful for the opportunities that she gave me. Wow. It's quite a vision to, to say to your, you know, relatively young, young person, um, why don't you leave high school <laughs> and go? Um, yeah. How old were you then? Was that? I, so that stage I was 17. Like, I'll be honest, it was a very formidable, formidable time in my life. My father, um, as we were coming back from the States, actually um, passed away of stomach cancer when he, when I was 15. So you know, we weren't living in a usual circumstance. At, at 17, I was taking a lot more responsibility for my brothers. And, right. um, you know, at the time, my mother was looking back, probably also dealing with depression. She'd lost the love of her life and was had three boys. I, I can't imagine what that was like, um, you know, to go from being in a relationship and then to becoming the sole breadwinner. Um, you know, she actually ended up going back to the States uh, for nine months when I was, I think when I was 17 and a half, um, I sold the family home and then had one of my brothers move in with me uh, while she left. And I confronted her, you know, I guess probably in my late 20s and said, you know, I'm really, really upset that, you know, this happened. And her response was, well, did, did everything work out? And I was like, yes. She says, well, who taught you the skills to be able to deal with that situation? And I can see looking back that, you know, she wasn't, able to have a conversation with me that she might needed to have had and that you know really she took uh, herself out of our environment so that she didn't have and bring in um, whatever she was dealing with to her kids at the time so it's you know there's a lot that's going on inside of that at that age of life um, and I would I'll be honest with you I, I didn't cope very well with it but um, at the point in time that for the work that I do now, we, we talk about resilience being so critical um, in the, today's modern work environment. And 
you know, those years of my life taught me life lessons that, you know, you really just can't put on a CV. It's, it's not something you can talk. We've only just been able to talk about it in the work environment, but it's very related to the work that I do at the moment. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. That's one of the things I love about the podcast is tracing through the links in people's lives between their origins and then what they do today. And I mean, I'm just thinking in my own teenage years, like it, it's a hard time for all of us, to, you know, working out our place in the world. And at age 15, 16, 17, those are, you know, that's quite a traumatic thing to go through to lose your father like that. For sure. I was angry for a long time. I say I, it was a good decade where I, I was in a threat response and just didn't recognize how my biology, biology was really reacting to what was happening in my environment. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your father. We've heard about your mother. Um, yeah. What sort of a person was he? Maybe, maybe to answer that question, I, um, I talk about the, what I found really valuable about being inside the Edmund Hurry Fellowship, and that is spending time with um, our you know, our Māori brethren, right? I had not really reconnected back with my father until I, I sat with Huya and said to her, like, I really don't understand my pepeha. I don't understand my place because I lost my dad at such a young age. Yeah. And, you know, after that, and she gave me some guidance. She said, well, look, there are people that still know his stories. And so I went to start looking back at what my parents' stories were. And you can't go and ask your parents when they've both passed away what their stories are. So you have to go to the siblings and, and to other people in their lives. And my dad was a troublemaker, just like me. He was very much one that was there to stand up for people's rights. And, you know, he did work with the um, Women's Refuge. And he, you know, he really was a person that sat and did very deep healing work with others and was able to hold a space for others to, to do that type of, of work. And I have a, a capacity for that as well. Um, and I also don't think, I don't think I can do work that isn't to the benefit of community. I think it doesn't make sense for me to do anything that's not for others or for the benefit of community. I don't see the point of doing other type of work. And I think I get that from him. I also look at his background and he moved to New Zealand when he was three years old. He was born in Edinburgh, but his father was actually born in the UK. And so I wonder what kind of ambition my grandfather must have had to decide that he wanted to move to New Zealand. And then, you know, you look to on my mother's side and um, my mother was one of seven children and she her father was born in Kenya and his family his his actually his mother really took him to Kenya to be, to be a missionary and I found out that his mother was one of the more senior leaders in the Salvation Army and actually in order for her to go on the mission with her husband she had to be demoted because she couldn't be the senior officer on that mission so mm. I think I come from this, this background where my, you know, was very, very strong women who have, have been in positions of leadership, troublemakers, and, and my, my mother's father was an, an entrepreneur. So I, I can see how all of those things kind of flow down into, into what I do. I think you're really wise here to, to dig deeper into that past, because sometimes we, we view ourselves from a Western conception as, as an individual. We celebrate our achievements look at these grades I got, look, I graduated from this course, I got this job, I did this. 
And, and yet we forget that the legacy of who we are, in a way, is a representation of everyone who's come before us. So it's really interesting to me that, you know, that there would be trends or themes that, that are passed through the generations as well. And that's something that would be a fascinating PhD to do, to think through, like, what is it that gets passed down through generations? Because I think there is something there, um, you know, nature and nurture, there's all those debates, but um, there is something about you know, finding out about your father and realizing that there's, you know, connection points to what you do today. Do you think that was what brought him into ministry and, and that was his way of outworking it was becoming a Baptist minister or? I don't know. I've never considered that question. So if you, if you give me some space to, to just have an inquiry with you, then, um, I can tell you, I know that there was conflict between my my father and his father in relation to the work that he did. And, you know, I think my, I think his spirituality came from his mother, not necessarily his father. Um, I also know that my father um, didn't pass um, fifth form mathematics twice. And fifth form mathematics is what year 10, I think year 11 and um at that same age i had um come back from the states i hadn't gone to school for six months because we were moving from the u.s to new zealand and we were doing correspondence and correspondence in those days didn't didn't have a video conference it was they sent you some papers and in the back of the book was the answers and so i became a big fan of um Big, big fan of David Letterman and nighttime television. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I really didn't go to school for half a year, but I, I got back and sat the maths exam and got 99.8 percentile in, in the country. So, so at the same age as he's failing that year, I'm, I'm achieving in it. So I'm, I, I don't know how to draw those parallels, but for, you to, to, for there to be a calling into ministry, and I, I, I think that it's, it is you are there for people. I think, you know, for my dad, his fulfillment came through, you know, helping others. And so I don't, I'm, I assume that his, his, um, his viewpoint was, um, was based on that's what he got. That's where he, he felt purpose in life. And, you know, it's a very human trait to, it's a very human trait to be with others and to be of assistance, right? We, we forget that actually um, if we don't, ask people if we don't ask those people around around us for help that they often feel like we we don't respect them because when we ask for the right help and people can offer help if people feel very 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 fulfilled and so i think that he had a a very fulfilling life um you know i do i do wonder i mean as i said i said previously i was quite angry about him passing and that was because he was in the church um and i could i started to become aware of the distinction between what what church was and what religion was and um i think you know in my meditation meditation the last couple of years i've I've become far more aware of the fact that actually he just did his best to raise me and that the things that he tried to teach me that i have that i have shunned are actually incredibly valuable lessons and that actually when you look across religion and spirituality and you know, there are things that he taught me to the best of his ability and then also things that I have learned that are, are different from what he's taught me. But actually, he he can be proud of me for that because of the fact that he can see that the journey that I'm going on is my own. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. 
Yeah, I think sometimes it, it can sometimes happen that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And um, there's, there is deep legacies and traditions within religion. Um, you know, the practice of meditation, for example, it's actually not a brand new thing in, in the West. You know, we look to the East for examples of it, but actually there's been Christian meditation for hundreds and thousands of years as well. So it's, um, it's important to remember that sometimes. So thank you for going a little bit deeper there with your parents. I just think it's, it's I, I enjoy hearing about people, particularly if they're no longer around, um, mm-hmm. because I think there is that legacy that comes through. And just turning to yourself, you know, we, we've talked, you're, you're getting to the end of high school. And obviously, yeah, what happened next? You did go on to university at that point with your mother's encouragement or, yeah. Yeah, I went to university, loved it, um, loved it and hated it. You know, uh, and, you know, I studied international business and then realized that actually studying international business and doing international business are completely different. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 yeah, I have, you know, expanded companies into like Japan and India, Bangladesh, US, set up business units in Costa Rica and Vietnam. And so I've had a lot of exposure to it and none of that, none of that is what you, what I learned in university. Um, but, you know, university allowed me to think about what it is that I enjoy doing. And I didn't want to become a consultant. I didn't, I didn't like the idea of sitting in an office. And, and I had friends that were trying to get into Arthur Anderson and PricewaterhouseCoopers and PwC and the like. That was, this, that was the career path for a management graduate. And I said, that doesn't make sense to me. I like tech. And so I was fortunate to get recruited into a new role they created at a company that at the time was called BCL, but is now, now well known as Cordia. And BCL was uh, the Broadcasting um, Corporation of New Zealand. You know, you look back in its history, it literally, it rolled out television. You know, it was it's, it's the transmission towers that sit up on the hills that broadcast digital television, digital radio. You know, they run satellite uplink stations and the maritime operations for a quarter of the world's, um, quarter of the world's oceans. It's a really cool technology company and got involved in rolling out 3G national Wi-Fi networks, digital television and, um, big big capital projects as a you know very young <laughs> fresh behind the ears graduate but learned how to write you know business cases and it was a very flat organization so I had you know you know personal relationships with the CEO and, and senior management team very fortunate very fortunate to be involved in, and, and to be a part of that organization for about five years but I, I realized that the infrastructure wasn't where the value was going to be in the future it was at the application layer and so um, I decided to leave the organization and go into uh, search engine world as as unusual as that sounds because I believed if we were going to have if you were going to launch an application that the most effective way of doing that would be using you know digital marketing so at that point in time is where I entered into the startup space and so what year are we talking about just to place us in context of? Uh, 2002, I think. 2002, oh. 2003. Hold on. So graduation around 2002, I'd say, in the tech space from about that time, right? So it's quite a long time when you consider it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's literally 20 years, isn't it? And the amazing thing is how much has changed in just 20 years. You know, like even, you know, simple things like I'm holding my iPhone here didn't exist that time ago and and how much do we just take for granted today what 
what there is, but you're in some ways you're talking about the early days of, of technology. Um, you know, it's uh, not that long ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know, and I have, I've had the privilege of meeting people that have, that kind of have laid the groundwork for where I came into it. So I don't think of myself as an OG of the internet. Um, you know, we have, there's some incredible people we have at internet New Zealand that have, have, done a lot of good work here, you know, and I've had the privilege of traveling around the world and meeting some people. I mean, I, I met the guy that invented IPTV, for example, works up in Singapore, is on the board at Spark. I have, have you know, he, he was involved in actually creating the mobile industry in, in Africa where they didn't have licenses. So he created the licenses and then went to work for some of the telecommunications companies to then bid for those licenses, like, you know, there's a lot of people that have done good work. Um, and honestly, you talk about legacy. And my, my aim is to try to, to, to live up to the legacy of my parents. I think that the impact that they had on people was something that I can aspire to. But mm. I, I, you know, I can look back and, you know, Cordia, I, I, I helped, helped it win its first telecommunications award with the two ends. And it was the Ligands. We worked with the Ligands Institute. And the problem was, is you, we couldn't get medical content into rural schools. So we had extra capacity on a, a satellite and every rural school had a television and a dial-up connection so we could create a back channel. And so this is well before, you know, high-speed internet was available in rural schools. And this program was being run, but only accessible to schools that could afford to put their students on a bus and take the afternoon off school. So, you know, that was the, the kind of stuff that I was doing back back at, you know, in the mid 2000s. And now I, I'm actually also a judge of those same awards. So, you know, it's now my turn to, to give back and spend my time on helping organizations and building that community and actually making assessments about what are the things that we should be highlighting as innovation in the industry. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, well, often it's like that in life. Things come full circle. And you get get the chance to stay involved in different things. So talk us through your career in terms of that, you know, beginning, I guess, in the 2004s, 5s or whatever. Because um, I know you had some interesting things that happened. Was it 2014-ish, 15-ish um, in terms of Netflix? So, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about oh, that. That's a fun story. Um, I'm writing a book about it at the moment. The... Um, so I, I, I got into the startup space and then ended up getting into software as a service. And, um, you know, we're talking very early. We weren't, we weren't cloud. We hadn't adopted the cloud at the time. People didn't understand what SaaS was. And, you know, now it's, it's something that's getting huge investment. So I've always kind of sat at the head of that curve. And as I went through another life stage and, you know, during this period of time, changes happened and I was... Um, I was found myself in a position where I could start my first company. Realized that um, I had that opportunity all along and just came down to them and the courage I was willing to take. And, um, you know, like any other startup story, the origin is it started in the cafe over a conversation about an idea that somebody had built a prototype for and somebody else would like to purchase. And the, the basic concept was that we, we didn't have Netflix available in New Zealand. The reason we didn't have it is we didn't have fiber internet our, our major pay operators had, um, you know, our major pay TV operator had sunk a lot of asset, a lot of infrastructure into, into satellite. So there was no driver for, for high-speed internet. Um, 
And we know that the benefit of high-speed internet is significantly greater than just getting content. It's access to health services. I mean, you look at the pandemic, if we didn't have fiber, how would we work remotely? How would we access um, healthcare? How would we access education? It's so critical. And so, so we drove this, we, we basically drove down the middle of, of what people will now call convergence. And, and we've built this technology, the world's first network level geo unblocking platform, which basically means that we made the, we made your internet connection transparent to the world's internet. Nothing would be blocked off. You could sit in New Zealand and you could access content from the US, you could access content from, um, from the UK. And what that did is it had the impact on the network of driving up the demand for content, but also decreasing the, decreasing the amount of pirating because people were able to purchase content from an overseas service. Now, um, at the time, it was quite controversial. Um, the, the reality is, is depending on which lawyer you would engage, they would have a different opinion. One would say that we were breaching copyright on the basis that it was a breach of a content distribution right. And another one would say, well, actually, no, it's just akin to parallel importing. And the precedent in New Zealand was that we had um, the right for a user to remove a geo prevention measure. That's why we have DVDs. That's why we have out of zone DVDs. That's why we have video chains. And we had the right to parallel import content. It's effectively why we have the warehouse. And so, but when disruption occurs, it's a change to the status quo. It is, you, what happens is you get a, an ingredient comes into an environment which where somebody is willing to take on something that's done in a different way because it's not being done by, and the, meet, the need is not being met by the current market. And so we grow, we grew pretty quickly. We, we got, um, and in New Zealand terms, nearly, it, New Zealand terms, it was, it was quite a lot. We had like one in, one in nine internet users was, was activated with a global mode connection. That's over 220,000 people. Um, and it, at the time, you know, Spark was trying to launch Lightbox. They'd spent nearly $80 million on content and platform and Sky had not yet launched any of its own streaming services. So after they, they took the, the route of trying to take us out by, you know, sending us more law, more lawyers than we could possibly ever imagine to, to pay, to pay for. Um, so it was an interesting journey that, um, that really, you know, got talked about quite, quite widely. It was, I wouldn't say it, it wasn't just New Zealand that we were, we were looking at, we were, we would have been setting a, 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 an international precedent. So you couldn't really retain a copyright lawyer and, New Zealand, the US, Australia, or the UK, anywhere there was a major movie studio. And I found out at a Christmas party recently that the funding for the lawyers wasn't coming out of New Zealand, it was coming out of the US. So we took on a pretty big challenge. And I'll be honest with you, I was naive to what we were doing at the beginning. But when, when Hollywood comes after you, and it's funded by every media player in New Zealand, so TVNZ, Sky, TV3, and um, and Spark all got together to work together to take us out. Um, you learn a few lessons. And, yeah, it um, sounds like it would have been <laughs> an exciting, um, scary time in some ways. <laughs> it's interesting to think, though, about the media and payment. And, you know, you just mentioned copyright. The, the, the episode that I just released today is about patents and the mm -hmm. fact that the patent system itself you know, while we while you can understand why it exists, you want to incentivize people to create something new 
tell us about it and you get a monopoly for a certain amount of time. But then after that, it's available for public good. Um, you know, but it it doesn't really work in every situation. You know, it's it's kind of a system that's a bit broken. And I think that's it's an example there. Like I remember buying a DVD, right? And oh, what region is it? Which I can't I can't play it here. I need to get a multi-region DVD player or something. But I guess from the big company's perspective, it's a way to um, make more revenue because they're producing more stuff. Yes, and and when you look at the economics of, of Hollywood, they sell you the same piece of content seven times, right? So they're trying to draw, you know, and I, look, I have, if I was the media company, I would take the same action, right? I have, I have no... I have no cause for blame. Uh, I, I think for me, I'm grateful for the experience. I learned more through that experience than I could have ever learned in any business school or any other business. It, it connected me very much into, you know, I got, put it this way, I got flown around the world to speak about the experience and keynote talks up in Europe and, and in India. Um, I, I became, I, I started to develop relationships with the media and uh, I started to develop relationships in political circles. So, you know, I can pick the phone up and talk to any number of politicians who know me for the work that I've been doing. And I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm well known as an individual, but my technology is well known. And so it, it, it brings a certain identity and environments. And, we, and so, it, you know, you can't buy that. You can't buy that experience. It's just not possible. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I mean, really I was good. out of my, I was out of my depth when it happened. I, I relied on others for that, but it also, for me, it, it frustrates me a little bit when in the pandemic, we, we see, I see leaders talking about being resilient and resilience being a thing that we created on our own. And I know that, you know, as a, as a, as an experience, I, it was pretty significant financial impact. You know, I had to sell a house. I had to sell my car, and you know, there's not those are not easy things to deal with. And you you either choose to give up, or you choose to 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 kind of dig in. And I know that for me, resilience when I went through that time was not about something I had built. It was not about my capacity. It was about support from my brothers, support from my family. I was. Unfortunately, it was the time that my mother passed away. And, you know, as much as she looked after me when I was, when she was alive, she did it after she passed away too, because she gave me an inheritance, you know? So I can see, I see resilience very differently from the way that we create narratives about it being strength. I think it's more linked to um, actually how have we, how have we built reciprocation in our communities and, and what are the relationships that we have that we can rely on when things get tough? yeah that's really good there's some there's some wisdom there because it is a word that gets thrown around a lot, a, a lot. <laughs> yeah. um yeah so talk us through i'm just curious that the next couple of years but then i'm also really interested in what you're up to today so could you just guide us through because i think you got involved in another venture and yeah just lead us up to what you're actually involved in today yeah so i guess the experience that I got from that was that I I sit quite nicely in this space that I think has been people call it disruption. Um, I call it 
I, I spend more time now thinking about it as uh, from the perspective of chaos. And because from chaos is where we get novel solutions. And so I'm very comfortable sitting in, in chaos and trying to make sense of it at a systems level. So I, after I had a couple of, I had a couple of companies and had some successful exits, I was able to take some time off to travel and then look at what I would spend my time on next. And I realized that um, innovation doesn't typically come from within inside in organizations. And disruption certainly doesn't come from within the industry. It comes from outside of industries. And it occurs to an industry that can't see that it needs to change its existing processes at speed. And frankly, you know, we don't have very much time until we reach a point where we can't really turn back the dial on climate. And I, I, I'm not here to place blame. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm... I fundamentally believe that if we hadn't used fossil fuels, that we wouldn't have this middle class that we have at the moment. We wouldn't have, um, we wouldn't have brought, you know, we wouldn't have the, the benefits that we've got around inequality and, and started to solve some of those problems around inequality across third world countries. And so, so I'm grateful for what we've had, but we need to change at speed when it comes to addressing climate. And I know that, it's really important from my perspective. I mean, the switching costs are ridiculous. You know, you talk to any any computer scientist, and they'll know that they won't switch between tasks. You look at um, look at agile methodology. Everything that they talk about is around focusing on a single thing. You know, Al Reese. If anybody, if you haven't read the book Focus from Al Reese, it, it's it's phenomenal. It's to become known for one thing. And now my work will be in the focus of climate change. And in particular, uh, I've co-founded with one of the other Hedman Hillary Fellows, uh, a company called Elementary Systems in order to build a bioenergy network. So that's, that's what I'm working on now. Oh, that's cool. And how did that come about? Was it, yeah, the, the, for those who are listening who aren't, aware that Edmund Hillary Fellowship, there's about, I think, 532 people in it. And it's an amazing network of connections, isn't it? Lots of people doing some really cool stuff around the world, but also with a focus here in New Zealand. So how did that um, spark happen between the two of you to actually set something up as a company? Well, yeah, so the fellowship, um, Edmund Hillary Fellowship, uh, if, if, you haven't, if you haven't heard about it, it's a very innovative um, impact visa program and what it does is pair up New Zealand entrepreneurs and investors with offshore entrepreneurs and investors to incubate ideas in New Zealand based on the UN sustainable development goals incubate those ideas here and then take them globally to solve some of the world's biggest problems so I had um, I'd been accepted into the copper copper intake in, in November and that was a very that was a life changing experience for for a number of reasons. But first of all, I, I realized I wasn't working with people that had the same values as me. And so, as soon as I got into the fellowship, within ten days, I had actually exited the project that I'd come in to work on and the other the other company that I'd had. And so, so my offer to the fellowship is really simple. The commitment that I made at the beginning was that if there's an international fellow coming to New Zealand, that I would try to provide them access to my network and I would try to help their family settle in a way that they could understand what the, 
community was because I had already I'd done work with a not-for-profit previously called Omega, where we help skilled migrants find work in New Zealand, and I know the difficulties associated with it. Um, so I had the I had, had the privilege of being inside this fellowship and getting to know people as friends, and and my offer was very clear. I would I would help, and so I ended up meeting Haman just as lockdown was happening. Um, you know, the world was going into the pandemic. You know, he came to New Zealand for six weeks and couldn't believe that New Zealand didn't have a bioenergy market, um, despite it having a huge agricultural industry. And so I started to help him try to navigate the political environment, understand the culture. And as we as we started to work together, we, we grew our friendship. And unlike every other company in the past that I've started, which was very quick out of the gates, we took our time to get to know each other. And we, we, we soon realized that we shared common values and a common belief system and that we would, um, in a, a, a similar vision, his, his vision for what he would like to see for New Zealand is as big as mine. And, you know, when you, when you take some of those things on, it's actually quite a lonely journey. It, you're often sitting in a space and you can see something that many others can't and it's hard work. And so it's not good work to do alone. And so when I saw what his passion was and kind of looked at what my values were, we sat down and uh, very recently have agreed to work together and start to raise capital for Alimentary Systems. We signed our, our co-founders agreement and constitution and all of our documents about three weeks ago. And actually, this is really the first public, public forum I've, I've talked about it. And so it's pretty exciting. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad that Seeds can be the place where it, it comes out. <laughs> and what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put some links or, you know, any information that you provide me, we can um, put it there for people who want to know more. Yeah, I think it's just reflecting while we're talking about Edmund Hillary Fellowship. It's interesting to me because it would be easy to take a very short-sighted view of it and say, you know, how many people are in it and what's their particular venture. But I think what will be fascinating will be in the coming, say, decade to look back and reflect on this person is now working with this person and they've, you know, created this new thing that's a merging of the two people's, you know, amazing talents into something completely fresh and disruptive and new. And that's where I think it's important to have that long-term perspective rather than the short-term you know, short-term gain rather than the long-term vision of, of what it could be. So yeah, it's quite exciting. I think I've had about 20 different people on now on who've been associated with EHF. So it's really cool. So yeah, just yeah, tell me. I agree. Tell, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be fun. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to reinforce what you're saying, um, it's very hard to report on the metrics that, that of what the fellowship creates because it happens between the gaps it's it's not look i have no doubt and i think already there's a there's a financial return on investment from the fellowship and the investments that have been made and related investments and i'm comfortable that we, while we might while we may not get investments through the ehf fellowship i guarantee you we'll get it through the ehf network because the fellows are connected into another network i'll give you a really simple example i was in new york recently and um, through one of the fellows i ended up meeting um, quite a famous New York financier um, and he is very well known because he was a target for um, a story that was you know fraudulent behavior back in the 1990s you know the guy had a had a 
had a, an apartment at, overlooking, um, you know, the, the downtown New York and was in the Ferrari club and, you know, did some insider training and, you know, has, 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 he's got movies about it, you know, now you learn from that. I, I can sit down and tell you that I lost a lot of money from being sued by media companies. You know, there's always another side to that story, but I'm not, I'm not in that conversation if it's not for even Hillary fellowship, right? Mm. I'm not in that discussion with somebody that has, has got the war wounds of what it looks like to, to be in the mergers and acquisitions market in New York, who's incredibly well known if it's not for the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, mm. right? I'm, I'm in Puerto Rico um, about three months ago. I've been in the States because that's where my fiance is based. Go down to Puerto Rico and a good friend of mine is there who is, I know through Copper Copper, introduces me to another friend of his who lives there. And then he gives me his Jeep for the day so I can take my fiance's son out on a road trip. I'm not going to put that inside of an EHF report that says what's the metric, but it's priceless to build that relationship with my stepson that, that day. He, we had the most phenomenal day because of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship Network, right? It's the gaps that occur, those conversations that occur between the fellows and the downtime is where the real goal is. And that's what, that's where we'll see this long-term value created by the fellowship and yeah, I'm just, I'm so, so lucky and so happy that I've been able to be a part of it. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, we'll definitely um, send this round to other people so they can can hear it because I think you're right. That's a great testimony to, to the potential as well of what it will be. So what's keeping you excited these days? I mean, we, you, you know, we've had different lockdowns and things. This new venture, it sounds like that's giving you a lot of energy. Is that your main focus? Yeah, well, I look. I got rid of all the other things that were distracting me, and and um, this is the thing now. And I, to be honest with you, I think it's going to be the thing for the rest of my life. Um, the we have to build a circular economy, um, and the reason I decided to work with Haman is that when we looked at, I looked at what his technology was. He, we actually have cracked the circular economy, and. What I mean by crack the circular economy, the linear economy is very difficult to see um, because what occurs is that the, the way we process things or the way that systems are set up is in the design phase. So 80% of the work is at the beginning, right? And so looking at Harman's technology from a circular approach, actually we can build completely new business models based on transition engineering that focus on and de- focus on decarbonizing so many of the supply chains at the moment around waste. And at a basic level, what we're trying to do is create a, a bioenergy business that uses any waste as its feedstock. And so what that means is um, every industry and every municipality has waste. We have byproducts as a result of human waste. We have the byproducts as a result of any industry processes. Um, making grapes or making wine has great mark. If you if you make milk, you've got they call death sludge. If you if you um, if you you know our meat industry, you know there's something that happens with the stuff that's left over in the the cow stomach, right? Um, these things are energy. You know, one of the things that I learned from working with Harman is that we don't create energy, we convert energy, right? And we have nearly 333 million tons of waste byproduct in New Zealand that could fuel 
uh, 25% of our energy needs in New Zealand. And it's completely green, it's carbon free, it's zero emissions, and it takes, but it, what it does is it, it, it requires us to stop thinking about waste minimization and start to think about, well, how can we extract the most amount of value out of that waste? And then take another perspective and say, well, actually circular economies need to be built from the design phase to think about rather than owning a capital asset, how do we get better asset utilization so that we're sharing infrastructure in order to make better decisions around how do we deal with these byproducts? And then, so if we're sharing infrastructure, what we can then start to do is build these circular models in. You'll put waste in and you'll take a byproduct out. So then we start to actually look at the round trip times and suddenly you're, you don't have a truck going one way that's empty going the other way. So yeah, it's really, really exciting work uh, at the moment. Um, and I'm, I can even feel myself just bubbling from it. So it's, it probably doesn't sound, it doesn't sound concise or consistent, but yeah, I'll take, oh, a, take a deep breath and let you ask a question. <laughs> no, it's good. I can hear, I can hear the energy there. And it's actually quite a privilege to be here at the beginning of your journey to talk with somebody who wants to devote their life to a cause, you know, to a company, to an initiative that's going to change the future to hear what you're saying now. So why don't we diarize, you know, like a couple of years from now, let's have an update because <laughs> it'll be interesting to see where things have progressed to and, and what partnerships have resulted. And, you know, um, cause I, I think, as you know, one of the big things with startups is purely the energy that the founders bring to the initiative um, because that, that's such a key part, you know, VCs are always looking who's the founder, who's the people behind it. The idea, in some ways, they don't matter as much as is there the passion to really see it through. So it's great to hear. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast. Uh, every day I go for a walk on the beach. Sometimes I listen to the ocean. Sometimes I listen to the podcast. And um, there was a talk by, I think it was, is it Samantha Ryan's podcast, Get Rich, Make Money? And she there's a talk, a TED talk that's done by a guy that was that built a bioenergy boat with Sea Shepherd. And I think the title of his talk was Find a Cause Worth Dying For. And right. what we're trying to take on is a big challenge. Every single time we walk into a conversation, they go, do you know that what you're trying to do can't be done? And we're like, yes. And to me, that's the indication of where disruption is possible. It's where... The idea that people can't see and don't think it's possible is where the change needs to occur. And so that's what excites me most about it. And I, I know how to navigate that environment. I know what risks we need to take. I know where to take risks and where not to take risks on it. And, um, you know, we've transferred the intellectual property that, that Haman has created in India. We, we have patents on the technology. It's, you know, we're considering what new patents we need to have um, in order to give you know, give our investors the confidence that we, we, we will have a runway. But at the same time, we're going to take a completely open source approach to building infrastructure. We're going to have shared ownership models that integrate, you know, 100-year strategies that return wealth back to indigeneity. That, because the reality is, is I think that iwi are the ones that have held New Zealand accountable to an environmental standard. And we've yet to see how valuable Māori tanga is for our country. You know, it is, it is a hugely incredible privilege that we have. 
um, to be in New Zealand where actually we have incredible values that come from iwi that, that look at the full, the full picture, the, the connection of an individual to the land, the connection of the land to the health of the people. And, you know, I was going for a walk this morning and it was so wet last night in Auckland that my, there was a massive puddle of, of water on the floor and I can just see the storm water and it's, I can see that how brown it is in the ocean out there. And I know that for the next two days, you don't go anywhere near that water. So, you know, the, the real purpose of, of creating a bioenergy network to deal with waste is to provide clean waterways and, and to work with Ewe to give them a, an option that says, hey, look, this can align to our, our real values for what we want to see for New Zealand for a, a clean green image. And at the same time, build that circularity into it so that it's commercially successful um, because we're not going to create a circular economy unless we show that the, the, linear, the linear economy can be significantly outperformed by the circular economy. Um, so it's because we do need those models in order to drive businesses to make the changes that they need to do and councils to make the changes that they need to do. Mm. That's awesome. Well, we'll put some links in the show notes so people can just, you know, send over anything you've got and we'll edit in. If people are curious, they can find out more. But I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. It's been great to talk with you. Um, I particularly appreciated your willingness to share about your parents. Um, you know, they're no longer with us, but it was really um yeah, quite deep to consider your father and his background, his origins, your mother, the influence that she had on your life as well. Um, but then also to trace through from that point, you know, coming out of high school early, going to university, um, getting involved in technology, the lessons that you learned through that experience. You know, I think, as you said, it's just priceless. You, you, you can't buy those experiences. But then the key thing is, how you're using the background to now push forward into the future and, and look for positive change. So thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, really appreciate your time and, and coming on the show. Stephen, it's been an honor and keep up the good work. I really, really, really appreciate you dedicating your time to, to letting me tell these stories. So thank you so much for having me on. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matthew. For me, there were a bunch of highlights, but I really enjoyed his reflections on his parents and how that has influenced him today. If you enjoy this, then check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And there's also some links in the description, which will take you to more information about Matthew's endeavors. And thanks to all of you who keep posting about seeds on social media. It really helps. Until next time. Mm-hmm.